Please turn with me to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And we'll read together verses 19 through 28 of chapter 15. This um, passage may not seem uh, like an Advent passage to you. You may wonder where Luke is. You may wonder where Matthew is. You may may wonder where those typical Advent season readings are. Well, let me just remind you from last week of what I suggested to you, and that is that Jesus has come to pick a fight. He has come to pick a fight. And that's why we're looking at this passage this morning. First Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 19. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Lots of personal pronouns in that passage. Let's pray that God will help us understand what's going on. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we celebrate what you have started and we rejoice because you will finish what you have begun. Grant us your spirit as we think about your word and may the hope of this passage be pressed into the hearts of your people by your spirit. Help us to see and understand what you have for us here. We pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus has enemies. Jesus has enemies. And it isn't just that there have been and are people and powers and principalities who are opposed to him, militantly so, violently so. But you understand what I'm saying? It isn't just that there are people, principalities, and powers who are opposed to him. He is opposed to principalities and powers. And while we don't have time for this this morning, it's clear that the scriptures want us to understand that he is opposed even to people. He has enemies. 
our preparations for Advent, our decorations and, and our meals together with family, our buying and giving of gifts, our special services seem pretty far removed from the idea of conflict. Our Advent and Christmas hymns rarely, if ever, focus on the idea of conflict, that in and through the incarnation, there is preparation for conflict. The idea that the birth of Jesus represents an invasion. The idea that the incarnation of Jesus is the first step in the fulfillment of a promise, a promise that is reiterated across the Old Testament in countless ways, multiple places. The idea that the incarnation of Jesus is the first step or the first act in the fulfillment of all of those promises that have ultimately to do with the final destruction of everything that is wrong and evil, that rarely, rarely makes its way into our Christmas carols, our Christmas hymns. Let me give you an example. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I have, well, I can say this. There isn't anything in the scriptures that suggests that Jesus was exempted from the pains that accompany human existence in this sin-plagued world. I don't know this for sure. But if his humanity was a true humanity, using the language of the Apostle Paul, if he really did take to himself the likeness of sinful flesh, not sinful because he was preserved from sin, but flesh and blood just like yours, I will guarantee you that he felt the realities of that condition. But our Christmas music so often wants, and I love our Christmas music. Don't, I'm not, I'm not here to pick a fight. I love our Christmas music. But our Christmas music and our attitudes about the birth of this child seem so sanitized and so dry cleaned and so, so softened and so peaceful and passive and idyllic. Jesus came to pick a fight. That's why he came. He came to pick a fight with his enemies. I know, I know all of the passages. You know them probably better than I do. You know probably that the first words spoken to Gabriel were, do not be afraid. That's Luke 1.13. The first word of the angel spoken to Mary, was do not be afraid. The first word spoken by the angel in Luke 2.10 to the shepherds was fear not. 
And then there's the song of the angels, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. No conflict there. But it was Jesus who said, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. In its context, Jesus' statement means that he, his presence, his gospel will produce divisions. Father will be set against son. Mother will be set against daughter. A person in one's own house will become the enemy of another in that house. That's what Jesus' statement in its setting means. But what that is, is simply a localized and very specific application of this reality that Jesus has come to wage war because he has enemies. One of his enemies is the devil, the great red dragon, the serpent. But he has other enemies. Do you see it in this passage? Do you hear the language? Verse 24, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, verse 25 refers to enemies and that Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is an enemy. Death is your enemy. And in some respects, that enemy, the enemy death, is more present, more vivid, more real, more a concern to you than unseen enemies like angels and principalities and the great red dragon himself, all of whom oppose a good God who hate him, who hate his gospel. Death is a more real and present enemy for you and me than these other enemies. Death is the reason you go to the gym. Death is the reason you start eating rabbit food rather than cheeseburgers. Death is the reason that there is a multi-billion dollar industry producing little white pills to do things like keep your heart in rhythm and lower your blood pressure. And this passage is telling you and me, in effect, that that enemy to you is an enemy to Jesus and Jesus has come to destroy it. Let me give you, let me give you three pegs. Three little pegs to hang this passage on. Three singularly powerful affirmations. Folks, it is so easy to be discouraged by what you see around you. So easy to be disheartened by what you feel in you. So easy to be discouraged by what you carry around with you every day. But here in this passage, the Apostle Paul is encouraging you and me to do three things 
He's encouraging us to take three looks, a look back, a look up, and a look ahead. A look back at a past resurrection. A look up at a present reign. And a look ahead at a promised return. A look back, a look up, and a look forward. If there's, if there's one sermon that I need to hear from me, it's this sermon. So, this isn't for you, it's for me. First, a look back, a look back to a past resurrection. What is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15? His argument is for the certainty of the final resurrection of the dead. That's what's going on here. His argument is an argument for the certainty of the final resurrection of the dead. Your final resurrection. The final resurrection of your bodies. Your ultimate victory over death and the grave. And what is it that gives you that hope? To what is your hope of a final bodily resurrection pinned? Well, it is pinned to this past fact, this past reality that Christ, who was certifiably dead, was raised from death. The past resurrection, Paul writes in verses 19 and 20, if in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Look, if you're a Christian just for whatever comfort you can get, because Christianity brings you some measure of comfort in this life, but there's no final end game, there's no final outcome, there's no final certainty, then two things are true. Number one, and Paul makes this case earlier in the letter, in the, in this chapter, number one, God hasn't told the truth. Because it is God through the Apostle Paul and through the rest of the Apostles, it is God through them who is the one heralding the prospect of the resurrection of the dead. And if the dead are not raised, then God has not told the truth. And if you continue to hope in something which is in fact a lie, you among all people are most to be pitied. Have you ever asked yourself the question, what would I do if they found the body? I know some of you have because I've talked with some of you about this. What would you do? Some of you, I've been asking this question of you, some of you say, have said, well, I'd become a Jew. I'd become a Jew. If they found the body, I'd become a Jew because in the Old Testament there is the promise of a Messiah to come. But you see, that really doesn't work. And Paul gets it. And the reason it doesn't work is because the God who has commissioned Paul and the rest of the apostles to proclaim the truth of the resurrection of the dead is the same God who spoke the promise through the prophets in the first place. If the resurrection of Christ has not occurred, the whole thing collapses like a house of cards. And you know what Paul's answer is? His answer His answer to the question, what would you do if they found the body, is the answer that this culture is giving to people. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It is over. It is over. 
it is done. Paul's whole argument here is that Christ, who was certifiably dead, not for minutes. Again, Jesus is the one who came to pick a fight, not me. I'm happy for Don Piper's experience. I'm happy for Don Piper's book. I'm happy for the more recent book, Heaven is Real, a description apparently uh, of a little boy who experienced an afterlife experience and a book was written about it. I'm happy for those books, but my friends, upon what, to what am I staking the future hope of the resurrection of my body? I am not pinning my hope to someone who had a few minutes of experience after death and who then somehow mysteriously and in God's providence was revived, who lived to make reports about things that he had seen after his death. I am not pinning my hopes to that. I am pinning my hope to the fact that Jesus, certifiably dead, buried in a tomb, stone rolled against the mouth of that tomb, covered in pounds of linen and burial spices, not a matter of minutes, but days after his entombment came back to life. And here's the clincher, transformed never to die again. Never to die again. There are lots of resurrections in the scriptures. There are resurrections in the Old Testament. Several resurrections in the New Testament. Lazarus, the son of the widow at Nain. The little girl whom Jesus raised from death to life. I've said this to you before. I'll say it again. Every single one of those people had to go through it again. I mean, it's just not hard to imagine. Lazarus, we've laughed about this before, but let me just make the point again. It's not at all hard to imagine Lazarus saying to Jesus, why on earth did you do that? Why did you bring me back? I mean, can't you imagine Jesus with Lazarus and Mary and Martha in the corner of the home in Bethany sometime between the resurrection of Lazarus and the betrayal of Jesus and his ultimate cruise? Can't you imagine Lazarus taking Jesus off in the corner? I don't know if he did this. I don't. But it isn't hard to imagine them having that conversation. It's not hard to imagine. Don't know that it did, but it's not hard to imagine. Why did you bring me back? I have to go through that again. Every single one of them died again. But Jesus doesn't come back from the dead only to die again. Jesus comes back from the dead never to die again 
and transformed, glorified, giving us a little snapshot, just a little picture of what it is that awaits us. A body, as Paul says later in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, that is no longer mortal, that is no longer subject to the weaknesses and the frailties, the gradual breakdown of the body, no longer subject to mortality, but now immortal, never to die again. Can you imagine such a thing? Don Piper will die. This little boy will die unless Jesus returns first. That's the burden of the apostles' argument in 1 Corinthians 15. We pin our hopes to a real resurrection that occurred in the past, a past resurrection. The promise of Jesus in his resurrection is that death is not the end for all who believe in him. Death is not the end. N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope, says we really, and I think this is a wonderful observation, says we really sort of have it backwards. I don't think he's around to pick a fight either, but he does wonder why it is that all of the celebration, all of the festivities, all of the greenery, all of the gift-giving, all of the things surrounding Christmas Don't surround Easter. If you don't have Easter, you don't have Christmas. Amen to that. Paul wants our hearts to be encouraged with the prospect that what has happened to Jesus is what will happen to all who have attached themselves to him a resurrection which will be a transformation leading to a state of existence in which you will never die again. Here's the second thing. We look back to a past resurrection and we look up to a present reign. A present reign. Let me say it a third time. A present Rain. Look at verses 22 through 25. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Okay, sequence. Sequence of things. First this, then this, and then this. Sequence of things. Each in its own order. Christ, the first fruits. Christ, the first fruits. That's the past resurrection. That's the thing that we look back to. Then second, those who are Christ's at his coming. They will be raised at his coming. And then here is the third thing. Then comes the end. Christ the firstfruits, that's first. He's been raised. Those who are Christ's at his coming, that happens next. And after that happens, then comes the end. 
When the resurrection occurs, and you can read about it in 1 Thessalonians 4, when the trumpet sounds, when Christ descends in the midst of glory, when all of the heavenly hosts accompany him, he comes down for the bodies of his beloved who are buried in the ground. In both passages, 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul uses the language asleep. In both contexts, his concern is to address believers whose mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, friends have died, whose children have died, whose husbands have died, whose wives have died. His concern is to address those who have stood at the edge of graves. And the language he uses to describe what has happened is that they have fallen Asleep. They have fallen asleep. Here's what happens at death. What happens at death is what I like to refer to as the great divorce. Two things that were married at the creation are divorced from one another. The body and the soul. And if you read Philippians 1, or if you look at Hebrews chapter 12, you get very clear indications. If you listen to Jesus as he speaks to the thief on the cross, you get very clear indications that at the time of death, there is something in me, something about me that departs and goes to be in paradise, in the presence of Christ. Paul says, it is far better to depart and be with Christ. What happens at death is that your soul is divorced from your body And all of us have been near bodies that have died and they appear to be asleep. The body sleeps in the dust. The soul departs to be with Christ. That is the great divorce. But at the return of Christ, when the trumpet sounds, when the angelic host accompany him on clouds of glory and all of it descends and comes down to us, Jesus comes for two reasons. Number one, to raise those bodies from their sleep and marry them back to their souls. And he comes for this second reason. And it's there in verse 25. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And when the last enemy to be destroyed is death, when those bodies are raised from those ashes, fully restored, re-knit, put back together, reunited with souls, death will be destroyed. And Jesus will do this last thing. Verse 24. He will turn the kingdom over to the Father. Having built his kingdom, 
having perfected his kingdom, having populated his kingdom, the Son, having fulfilled the Father's commission, will present the kingdom to his Father so that God may be Lord over all. And even Jesus, the end of the passage tells us, verse 28, even Jesus will be subjected to him who had subjected everything to Jesus until that time when Jesus finishes his rule and reign, completes his work, and presents a perfected kingdom populated by resurrected, transformed, and perfected citizens to the Father that they together might enjoy glory forever. Here's my point. If you're waiting for the reign of Christ, stop waiting. He is reigning. And he must continue to reign and rule and govern everything until he finishes what he inaugurated in his incarnation. Until the last battle is won. Until the last victory is secured. He must continue to reign until he finishes what he has begun. And when he finishes what he has begun, he will present it in all of its glory to the Father. I'm giving you another peek, a bit of an advertisement for what we're going to do in January on Sunday evening. 35 times in the Revelation, the word throne appears. 33 of those 35 times depict Jesus seated together with his Father, governing, ruling, reigning, directing the whole of human history to the end that he vanquishes every enemy, sin, Satan, and death itself. And when he finishes that work, his work will be done. And he will present that perfected work to his beloved Father. A past resurrection and a present reign. A present reign. And then finally, a promised return. We've alluded to this already. What happens in the interim? What happens between the resurrection of Jesus and now during the reign of Jesus? Everything is moving in the direction of the final overthrow, the final destruction of the last and greatest enemy. And that is death. April 13th, 1741, Handel's Messiah was debuted in Dublin, Ireland. It was advertised and then performed as a fundraiser for an orphanage. Handel's Messiah 
is the only piece of composed music to be performed continuously from the day of its debut. In 1742, it was debuted in London. And you may know this story. King George II, who was at the debut of the first performance of Messiah in London, George II, at the Hallelujah Chorus, stood, and it has become habitual for for gatherings of people to stand at the singing of the Hallelujah Chorus. This lecturer whom I'm listening to, who is helping me to understand great music, says there have been three reasons offered as to why George II stood at the singing of the Hallelujah Chorus. The first of them is very bass. When a king hears a chorus singing about kings, he thinks the chorus is about himself, and so naturally he stands to put himself on display. The other possibility is that the king was so caught up in Handel's music that he wanted to stand to honor Handel. Well, nobody but God and George II know the real reason that George II stood at the singing of the Hallelujah Chorus. Here's what I know and believe that somehow unwittingly, George II stood as a symbol, as a representation of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and of his final resolve and determination to eradicate every enemy that you have. Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, and he shall reign forever and forever. Hallelujah. Jesus came to pick a fight. He won the fight for himself. He vanquished death for himself. And he will win the fight for you. He will vanquish death for you. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for what you have done, for what you are doing, and for what you have yet to do Lord Jesus, death is very much with us. But thank you that you will come and you will smash it under your feet. You will destroy it forever. Give your people hope concerning this future reality. And be with us now as we prepare our hearts to come to this, your table. We pray in your name. Amen. As we prepare to come to the table, let me invite you.